Welcome to another episode of A People's Theology. I'm your quarantine despairer and a People's Theology host, Mason Menega. In this episode, I talk with Dr. Will Gaffney. Dr. Gaffney is Associate Professor of Hebrew Bible at Bright Divinity School. She is also the author of Womanist Midrash, a reintroduction to the women of the Torah and the throne. Also musically featured throughout this episode is Shake It Up. Shake It Up is an alternative band from Minneapolis. You can get connected with both Will and Shake It Up and their work in the links in the episode description. If you're a fan of A People's Theology, it would bring me no greater joy than if you gave the podcast a five-star rating and review. Tell me what you like about the podcast. Also, if you feel so inclined, please support my Patreon at patreon.com forward slash Mason Meninga. There are multiple tiers with wonderful rewards, including papers I write to even a book club. Enough of my rambling. Enjoy more inspiring and liberating theology. Today, I have Dr. Will Gaffney with me. And uh, Dr. Gaffney, you do lots of thing in the, things in the world, including uh, you're a professor and you're a Hebrew Bible scholar and a womanist theologian. And uh, you just do lots of amazing things in the world, including, including quote tweeting cute black babies accounts. And it's just the <laughs> best. So uh, with that said, there's lots of things that you are in the world. But who is Dr. Will Gaffney to Dr. Will Gaffney? I'm really glad you sent me that question so I wouldn't be sitting here with dead airtime while I tried (laughs) to figure out what that meant. I don't know what it means, but a friend of mine recently put something on his Facebook page where he ranked the order in which he was various things in ministry. And Mm. so I'm going to use that as my default. And I would say first, I'm a teacher, Mm. secondarily, a preacher. After that, I would say a pastor and a priest. Mm -hmm. Following that would be an activist. Um, Following that would be an artist. And I think that covers the big things. I'll probably think of something else later. Mm -hmm. That's super great. Uh, But... Like I mentioned before, there's also the, the quote tweeter of cute black babies. You've got to add that piece to it. <laughs> so maybe with, with activists, I think the way I worded it on his page was activists and public intellectual go together. Mm-hmm. And under the broad rubric of public intellectual is uh, things that bring us joy. Totally. Totally. Love it. So you published Womanist Midrash a few years ago now, um, and obviously you're you're a Hebrew Bible expert, um, but what was something maybe you learned about the Hebrew Bible as you wrote Womanist Midrash that you didn't know before writing the book? I learned something every time I read the Hebrew Bible through. In terms of that particular project, 
I think I had a greater appreciation for the chaos in what was left of Judah by the time of the fall, hmm. uh, trying to sort out uh, the constantly shifting monarchs and attempts to provide the people some kind of stability, whether it was uh, Egyptian Pharaoh or Nebuchadnezzar or the people putting forth their own choice or the hopes that someone would rise uh, and take over or uh, Gadal, Nebuchadnezzar being seen as an interloper, just so much chaos that it made it very difficult to sort out what was happening in chronological order. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. In terms of a, a story in the text that was new to me that I hadn't seen before was uh, the princesses who in Woman is Midrash are in the chapter, of the, something like the last princesses of Judah. Mm -hmm. They are certainly King uh, Zedekiah's daughters, perhaps daughters left over from previous reigns that that still lived in royal housing, but there's this story of these royal daughters who are uh, drug across country, then kidnapped, then rescued, and it becomes apparent that people want to control them because if one of them should be impregnated, then that's a claim to a new monarch to reconstitute Judah. Mm. And so just watching these women being dragged around and passed from hand to hand um, was very sobering. Mm -hmm. I'm sure writing books is a really personal project, uh, and this isn't your first book, but what was something maybe that you learned about yourself as a writer, maybe even as a womanist or even a theologian or as a person as you wrote Womanist Midrash? So I need to correct the record because womanism existed um, broadly in literature and then came into religious scholarship through theology. Mm -hmm. People shorthand womanism in any academic religious uh, guild as theology. I don't do womanist theology. I do okay. womanist biblical scholarship. And mm -hmm. so I'm not a womanist theologian. I'm a womanist biblical scholar. What I might have learned in the process of writing this book it was really because I was writing two books at the same time. I was writing the commentary on Nahum, Habakkuk, and Zephaniah that's in the Wisdom series. And so I learned I could write two books at one time. But I also learned that different books require different levels of attention and engagement. And I imagine, as I talk to my friends who have children, that it works that way when you have small humans in your house. The books had very different demands of me, and I was quite surprised by that. Midrash is something that may be unfamiliar to a lot of my listeners. I think probably most of my listeners come from the Christian tradition, and so it's something that they're less familiar with. 
so with those who are unfamiliar, what exactly is Midrash? Midrash is classical exegesis in the Jewish tradition. Mm. It is a practice of engaging deeply with the text, beginning with the Hebrew language. It looks for gaps in the text, patterns in the text, repetition, uh, characters without names. But it also looks to answer questions left by the text and sometimes asks and answers questions that are not particularly in the text. It is uh, exegesis that has some rules as it was developed into a formal practice of interpreting the biblical text. And when I do it, I do it in conversation with those rabbis and do it in um, deeply involved in the language. There is in our time also people using the word midrash as a way to talk about uh, rewriting the text or uh, writing an imaginative story based on the text. That's a very loose use of the term midrash and often people who are doing that are not engaging with the text in Hebrew and they're not engaging in the deep and long-standing uh, Jewish tradition of exegesis. Mm -hmm. So when I use the term midrash, I'm using it in conversation with classical rabbinic mm -hmm. exegesis and, and biblical interpretation. Mm -hmm. and, and in that traditional um, understanding of it, is it something that is done like in community? And is it something that it's it's more serving like the religious community rather than like serving more of like an academic uh, Jewish community? Is that, are those like maybe good assumptions, not good assumptions? So, so uh, exegesis, study of uh, sacred texts, uh, happens in community in Judaism in the classical period. Uh, and today they're, they're still bate uh, uh, midrash, uh, houses of midrash, houses of, of study. So it's definitely a communal practice. Uh, and one of the, the sub-practices is to have a study group or a study partner. Uh, and that was a practice I adopted when I was in graduate school. Three of us were admitted together. Two of us uh, became kavruta, became uh, study partners. Um, so there is a communal aspect. In terms of trying to separate out uh, sort of community academy, classically, while there are people who specialized uh, in Torah, the, the rabbis and sages whose uh, words and writings we see in the Talmud, uh, in the Mishnah, in other uh, religious texts, I don't know that they would have distinguished themselves uh, in terms of being religious or being academic. Uh, and today, uh, I found when I work with Jewish congregations that there's a much higher degree of literacy about the biblical text and about the other sacred texts in, in congregations. Mm. So sometimes the academic religious divide uh, doesn't work well. Mm -hmm. So one of the things that is sort of clear, especially as I was reading your, your book, is that Midrash is certainly this sort of hermeneutic or it's a way of um, interpreting. And, and in a sense, uh, from my understanding of womanism, there is a particular or an attempt to have a womanist hermeneutic. Um, and so how are the hermeneutics of Midrash and the hermeneutics of womanism maybe similar 
and how they're different. I'm sure, you know, they're obviously very two different traditions doing very two different things, but maybe are there some similarities and differences there? Sure. And obviously I bought them into conversation by uh, even naming the project a womanist midrash. So womanist hermeneutics are grounded in the lived experiences of black women. They are by default intersectional. And what intersectionality means is the effect of the multiple oppressions resulting from the multiple identities that black women live. Mm -hmm. It's not just having multiple identities, which is how intersectionality has been misused in broader public discourse. So taking that approach, which is by default, uh, engaging race and gender and class, and then depending on the interests of the womanist doing the work, uh, ability, disability, ageism, uh, all sorts of other matrices of analysis. Midrash is digging deeply into the text for the treasures that can be found, found there and sometimes helping to shape or even craft those treasures as the rabbis are getting particularly imaginative and creative. So holding those two things together, I'm reading the biblical text deeply using some of the tools of classic, classical midrash, uh, like uh, translation work and looking at the gaps in the text and mm -hmm. providing backstories for characters and providing names for characters to do this work of asking how this text speaks to the lived experiences of black women. And so mm -hmm. that's the point where they come together using all of these tools to ask, is this text functioning well as scripture for black women? Is this God functioning as the God of black women? Mm -hmm. And so th those who've read the book uh, will know that I ask questions like, if God is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, is it sufficient as a feminist and as a womanist to say, uh, God is then the God of Hagar, Sarah, Keturah, Rebecca, Rachel, Leah, Bilha, mm -hmm. and Zilpa. Um, does that bear weight? So let's ask Bilha and Zilpa, who as enslaved women have an experience with which Black women in the U.S. and around the world can relate, mm -hmm. and ask a woman like Bilha, who was first uh, enslaved to Laban, and we don't know if he used her sexually, then gave her to his daughter as a wedding present, who then gave her to her husband for forced surrogacy, and we call that rape, right? Mm -hmm. And then later in her life was raped by one of the sons of one of her co-wives or sister wives, a child who might have been like her own child or certainly like a nephew. And so is she going to say the God of the family who passed her from hand to hand and bed to bed is her God, right? Mm -hmm. So as a feminist, we might want to say God is the God of all and let's call the names of the women and get them on the page and tell the story. But as a womanist, I have to ask, is this God safe for Bilha? Yeah.
So one of the first human women that we encounter uh, in the Hebrew Bible is in Genesis with, with Eve, who in, in throughout much of Christian interpretive history has really been maligned, you know, as, as the one who is guilty of, of the quote-unquote fall. So what are ways in which you interpret the Genesis 3 narrative that does not necessarily malign uh, Eve at all? Well, one, I separate it from uh, John Milton's fall story because none of that is in the Bible. (laughs) Uh, So I stay with the text and in the biblical text, there is no language of sin imputed to Eve. The first sin in the biblical text is the murder of Abel by Cain. So I stick with those facts. Mm -hmm. In terms of how I understand the text, I was transformed as a seminarian in reading Phyllis Tibble's, Phyllis Tribble's God and the Rhetoric of Sexuality. She goes through this checklist of things that people have been taught to assume about Eve and about that story that just simply do not uh, bear weight. So the idea that um, Eve is subordinate to to Adam is is not in the text. That the language of helper uh, in Hebrew is uh, someone you call on for rescue, but it's really a superior being in the sense of God is my help. So mm-hmm. not a helpmate uh, or an assistant, like like we think of a plumber's assistant doesn't have the full set of skills as the plumber and is subordinate. Mm-hmm. But this is a term that is actually more than equal in the other way. Um, Even the language of creation that we simply must understand as um, rich language, painting pictures rather than sort of a biomedical article on how human beings were actually produced. Um, But it talks about taking the side of the Adam, which is a plurally gendered creature mm. and then dividing it in half. This business about the the rib is an intentional mistranslation. They know mm. better because the people, the men who have translated the Hebrew Bible for years, all of a sudden when it becomes to talking about the way the tabernacle is constructed or the way hillside terracing and farming are done, suddenly remember that the word actually means side and they're not talking about the ribs of the tabernacle, yeah. right? They they use it for side every place else, but then they go to this um, fairy tale when they translate it. So some of it was reading closely and understanding what is part of the text and tradition, what is not. Uh, and other is the very fine work of biblical scholars who have come before me. Mm-hmm. The story of Hagar is a story that many past womanist theologians and womanist biblical scholars really have focused on. How does your interpretation of that story of Hagar fall kind of within the tradition of past womanist interpretations? And what are ways in which you think maybe you're able to add some new insights to the womanist interpretive tradition of the story of Hagar? Well, I think we have such a robust canon of Hagar interpretations that I would say mine certainly falls fairly squarely Mm. within. The one exception is what I learned from Imam 
Amina Wadud, who is the first woman imam that we know of in modern Islam. And Dr. Wadud uh, challenged me in a conversation we were uh, with Muslims, Jews, and Christians talking about um, the daughters of, of Abraham or some construction like that. And, and of course, the story reads very differently in Quran because Ishmael is the child of promise. Mm -hmm. And what Dr. Wadud challenged us on is the moment we say a name, if we say Hagar, then we're taking the story in the Hebrew Bible, which then becomes part of Christian tradition, as normative. Mm. If we say Hagar, we're taking the Islamic story uh, as normative. So as soon as we call her name one way or the other, we have lost our neutrality. Mm. And so that was important for me to mm -hmm. bear in mind. Mm -hmm. And one of the things I did in that project and a couple others is whenever I work on a character who I know has a footprint in Quran or in the Hadith, I work them up on both sides of the page. Mm. So my work on Hagar in that text and my work on Keturah both draw on Hadith because they have very little in Quran mm. and in a paper, uh, well, a chapter in one of Mitzi Smith's books where I worked on Zipporah, the wife of Moses. I also did due diligence in Hadith to tell the fullness of her story in the ways it has been remembered by the people for whom she is part of their religious ancestry. Mm -hmm. Her name has sort of become like a shibboleth in a way, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's, that's really interesting. That, yeah, that was something that I certainly picked up on as I was reading that chapter and something that I, I very much had no idea about. I, I was really appreciative of uh, what you um, what were you able to share with that. Um, one of the things I also find really interesting about your book is you split it in two halves between the women in the Torah and the women on the throne. So I was really, this, this is sort of like terminology I've never heard before. So what are ways in which women in the Torah differ from women on the throne? Okay, so I'm going to tell you a publishing secret right now. Oh. In spite of uh, how well published I was already, uh, financial realities made my publisher skittish. I originally okay. wanted to do this as three volumes. And they're like, no, 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 that's too much. That'll take too long. So then I said, okay, we'll do three sections. And so they were insistent on it being two sections. And my original <laughs> format with the three volumes and the three sections was Torah, Prophets, and Writings, which is the structure of the Hebrew Bible. I also wanted to focus exclusively on women who would be unfamiliar to the readers. I, I really viewed it as uh, scriptural literacy project to introduce people to these snippets of, of women and stories that were fascinating to me. And they said, oh, no, 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 no. You've got to have some of the people that folk know, or they won't pick it up. It'll make them feel bad that they don't know any of these women from the Bible. Mm. So the project was changing from my intent in order to make it publishable. And so when we got to the point where they said, um, pick two sections. I decided to go with the Torah because that was 
familiar to readers. And even if they didn't know everybody in that section, they'd be able to say, okay, Sarah, okay, Eve, okay, Rebecca. Mm -hmm. And then wait, who are these other people? But they'd already be in the book. And I decided for the second half to focus on the women of the throne because I had not seen any work done consistently on all of these women as characters and certainly not together. And so that presented an opportunity to do a new work of scholarship and not uh, rehash what has been done often in uh, other feminist and womanist biblical scholarship. That allowed me to do something fairly new. Today, I have Dan from Shake It Up. Uh, Dan, first off, I really love the sound. Uh, and I just have to comment. I don't like commenting on bands' names a lot, but I do I do like your band's name. It's got a, like a really pop punk, like two, mid-2000s pop punk kind of name, right? Like, would you agree? Very much. Like, yes. I know that like that doesn't come through a ton like on some of your sound, but like it, it, it certainly that had to have been an influence, right? Yeah, I'm not gonna lie. It was taken from a Panic at the Disco song. Oh, okay. Well, that would be why Way back I, when I was in college. I'm not a huge Panic of, at the Disco <laughs> fan, so that would be why that went right over my head. But, uh, but it also makes sense why you know th- there's a pop punk reference going on there. So anyway, you know, I really I'm interested in the way in which you have been releasing music lately. You mentioned um, to me, and, and you can kind of look up on it online, but you've been releasing some singles lately. Um, and yeah. this seems to be like a trend that you're seeing among a lot of artists. Why why approach uh, music now kind of as like releasing singles and even like maybe some short EPs rather than releasing entire full length albums? Yeah, well, I think the overall trend is based on the fact that so many artists know that all it takes is that one song to pop right. kind of thing. And the amount of patience it takes for some people to listen through a whole album, I'm sure factors into it. Yeah. That for me personally, it's more so just that I never want to force myself into writing more songs than I'm happy with. Mm, mm -hmm. Um, Two songs, and that's that's all I feel good about. I'm not going to force enough to make it a five song EP or a 10 song album. I would literally just release a two song (laughs) little Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. point kind of thing. So releasing singles feels really good for me because I can just be really happy with the craft of that song and then release it mm-hmm, totally i you know i have heard of like some bands they'll sort of maybe slowly release some singles over the course mm-hmm. of a number of years and then when they do feel like okay here's like 10 singles that fit really well uh here's here's the full-length album of those 10 singles like yeah i, I mean I've, I've seen that a little bit too but it's such an in, a different way in which an artist relates to their music you know you, you think even like 30 40 50 years ago when bands were i mean they were prolific in how much they were writing and they were writing 20 song uh albums sometimes like even like the beatles were releasing almost like twice a year and they were these massively long albums like so anyway like that shift towards like just singles and only maybe like releasing like one single like a year versus 
releasing like 40 songs into one year like what what do you think is going on among artists where that like is a significant change like or how do you think an artist relates to their work with that kind of significant change of now instead of releasing 40 songs in one year you're only maybe releasing one or two yeah i think i mean i think that there's kind of a shift from maybe the storytelling that we used to see in so many albums Mm. back in the day um, there, and there's still a ton of bands that are willing to tell stories and put together things like that and whatnot. But I think they're just really a mix of that. The way people write to, um, you even see the difference, especially in like things like rap music, there'll be like the quote unquote, like conscious rap versus like mm. club rap and stuff like that. So there's just so many avenues of lyricism now and everyone, no matter what they say, everyone enjoys a song that's really simplistic, really easy to mm-hmm. sing to mm-hmm. and doesn't of depth as much as they love the songs that have a ton of depth and go deep so with so many people having different tastes and what they want to hear lyrically and things like that i think that affects even the lengths of releases we see do you find yourself wanting you know with writing some of those songs that might be really catchy and they're kind of easy to to digest especially as like a listener um Do you also feel like maybe that's balanced? You know, somebody I'm sure who like really respects a lot of music and loves a lot of music um, and cares a lot about music. Do you find yourself like at times really feeling like a need to write something that really is deep and you really don't care how a listener necessarily responds to whether or not this has got a really good catchy hook, but you really just want to write something that is uh, really transparent to into your soul even, if you will? Yeah, definitely. Like I actually... Lyrically, I feel like all of my music falls on this middle line of not, not super deep and also not catchy. <laughs> this is like, like the worst of both worlds, Dan. I'm not gonna, all the lyrics are totally written 100% for me. Like there's one song that um, I put on the EP we, re- we released called Puddle Worlds. And unless someone knows me personally, there's no context for that. Mm. There's like, it's literally a song about the fact that when I was in kindergarten, I would like stand on the playground at school and I would look into puddles and see the reflections of like trees and the sky and stuff. And it felt like a different world I could jump into. And I always imagined jumping into that. And now like as an adult, I'll take pictures of all those reflections Mm. and like my daughter get really interested in reflections in that. So that is like, that's just a song for me. Like it's all about how I just wanted to jump into that. Mm. And it has, it has no like depth beyond that. Like it's there the fact that I like the look of a reflection. Just sharing that story. (laughs) That's super great. Um, You you mentioned to me a a while back that you were a touring musician and, you know, more or less that kind of, you're you're doing a lot of different things now. Um, What what does like the state of touring look like, you think, or what what do you think, how how do you think the state of touring and live shows will be post-COVID? I think it's going to be super interesting. I don't, I don't have a huge grasp on even what it was like before that because I haven't played a show since 2011. Mm -hmm. Um, But back when I toured, it was like you knew if you were playing, people would come. But it was also like MySpace era, so it was really easy (laughs) to put a song up and have a bunch of people listen to it. Now it's like the hardest thing ever to get anyone to listen to a song or even download something for free. Mm -hmm. So I've seen like friends who still actively tour and play shows struggle with that. They'll be very, very talented musicians, and yet it seems like not a lot of people. Um, I mean, like unless you're really, really popping off, like people, it's hard to get people to show. So I think that like this time that we've been um, quarantined 
where people are having to do the live streams of shows is actually kind of like a special thing. I feel like it's a dynamic of like intimacy that I'm hoping those artists will be able to like carry over back into now those people are wanting to come experience that intimacy of the concert live. Yeah. Have you been watching some of your favorite artists uh, doing some of these like live stream on like Instagram or whatever? I have. Yeah. Yeah. What, what, like maybe, maybe, I don't know, maybe there's some like some bands worth noting that you're like, hey, those are really good ones that you should check out. What what are some of those? Uh, there's a buddy of mine named Chris Coza who did one that I really like. And then I caught an Anne Berlin stream. Oh, did they really do one? That's yeah. great. I yeah. love that. Sweet. Yeah. Um. So as you know, we, we continue to kind of move like what the world in general will look like post COVID, but also like the music world. Uh, what does music look like for you kind of as you continue to move on uh, in, in this year and maybe even in next year? Like, do you have like, anything down the down the works uh, or in the works uh, song wise? Maybe maybe even have like an EP. Maybe you're even ambitious and have a full length coming out soon. <laughs> like, what, what does it look like for you uh, as we continue on in the year? I'm hoping to release some more stuff. Honestly, I thought that I would do a lot of recording or I mean, writing anyways, while we were quarantined and I've done none. <laughs> who can't ever force it like the more I sit down like almost all my song ideas come when I'm not by my bass guitar mm. and then I come into my voice memos on my phone and go from there if I just sit down with my guitar like there's no writing like I can't get through the writer's block so I'm just kind of waiting for a new idea to come to me uh the last song that I wrote is a song called KLEE that I wrote for my wife and I literally woke up like snapped out of a sleep and the melody was in my head and I quick hummed it into my phone and I was like, that's that. And then went and recorded it eventually with some friends. So I'm hoping, <laughs> hoping to record those with the, the friends I did that last album on, do some more songs here in the future. But uh, since none of us can get together, that's, that's kind of tough. I, I do love that though, that the way in which a song kind of comes to existence for you is it's just purely organic. It's just by the sheer whim of it popping up in your mind at some point. Um, and so you're really at kind of the, you're sort of dependent on what your unconscious or your subconscious is uh, messing around with at that time that you're totally unaware of. And then all of a sudden it manifests into your consciousness and you're like, oh, quick, I got to like, I got to somehow not only like communicate that to like a device and record it, but like somehow harness that moment in which I once experienced it into like actually creating the entire song. But I, yeah. I think that's super interesting that you're really kind of on the whim uh, and discretion of your subconscious. Totally. That's exactly how it is. <laughs> Perfect. So thank you so much, Dan. I really am enjoying a lot of the music. You know, somebody who really grew up and has loved a lot of indie and alternative music, Like I, you guys are really good at what you do. Um, and you. so I'm, I'm a big fan uh, of the music. Uh, and, you know, continue to you know, continue to, to keep writing and hopefully that uh, subconscious uh, maybe puts out a little bit more every now and then. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Mason.
one of uh, the ways that I, or one of the things that I put, I picked up on in your section about Bathsheba was how explicit you wanted to be about what that story is really about. And so you talk about the world in which she lived and, you know, really it's not too much different than it is today um, where she's in a world where men are assaulting her and raping her. So what are things that we can learn about this story, if any, about the ways in which patriarchy still dominates and pillages and destroys and rapes and so on and so forth? But the lack of accountability and the lack of recognition of how rape harms women or the men or boys or children who are also subject to it. Um, so people who follow me in social media saw me engage Psalm 51 this year. Psalm 51 is the psalm that is traditionally composed by David. There's a significant question of whether he's literate enough to write it down, but he certainly can organize his thoughts and someone else write them down. So however it happened. But Psalm 51 is presented as a psalm of repentance for after he had penetrated Bathsheba. That's the first line of the psalm. Mm. But it doesn't describe it as rape. And when you get into the body of the psalm, uh, English readers often snip off the first verse. That they call them superscriptions. They're really not. They're part of the psalm. But So often you get it without that. And once you take that off, then there's nothing in there talking about Bathsheba anymore. And David says to God, to whom this psalm is addressed, against you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. I have not sinned against Bathsheba by raping her. I have not sinned against her husband by murdering her. I have not sinned against her husband by taking his woman, which is actually how the Torah would have understood that, that Uriah was more uh, aggrieved uh, than Bathsheba. But so many of our churches use Psalm 51 as the beginning of our Lenten repentance. And so here we have a psalm that is supposed to be in repentance for uh, sexual violence against a woman, and the perpetrator is making his peace with God by disallowing that he's done any harm to this woman mm. or her family. Um, we use a particular translation in the Book of Common Prayer in the Episcopal Church. I'm still trying to run down what that is. It looks like RSV with a little alteration. Um, but there's a line where David is talking about the harm that has come to him because of this. And he said, and in the prayer book, it says, the body you have broken. And so when I was in church praying that, what about the body you, David, have broken? Mm. Um, so the way that gets absolved in the scriptures is very much like what happens today. Mm. Um, you can get a man who makes the noise of repentance, cries, thrashes about. But society is still trying to come to terms with, how is this harmful? It's just sex, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and so I think unintentionally, that psalm holds up that reality to us. Mm -hmm. The Hebrew Bible is a text that encounters a number of religious traditions. 
How does a womanist interpretation of this text attempt to honor all of the interpretive traditions of the religious traditions that hold this text as sacred? Honoring is not about the specific interpretive tradition. I can honor and respect that people who pray, read, revere, study, interpret, and preach this text are going to come to some different conclusions. I can respect that. I can also say that some readings are harmful because of their implications or because of their explicit contact, uh, content, and that some readings are beneficial. Uh, I can also say that some readings are very distant from me because of the commitments of those readings. Uh, but that does not keep me from honoring or respecting them, except in the cases where I find someone is using the text in a really harmful mm. way. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. How do you see womanist midrash, and it may, may be very obvious, but how do you see it as inspiring and liberating theological work? Well, from what I hear from other people, it is a very meaningful book. I'm always pleasantly surprised when people take the time to write a longhand note or card and look up my sna- my post office uh, snail mail address to send it to me that tells me it's having an effect. Mm. I'm hearing from colleagues and students and students of colleagues uh, that it is required teaching in a number of seminary and university classrooms in uh, theological education in Christian seminaries and in some Jewish colleges and seminaries. Uh, I know uh, rabbis that are using it uh, as they prepare their weekly sermons. So hearing all of the places that it is being used uh, tells me that it is meaningful to people. And I am grateful and gratified that that is the case. Mm, That's super great. Last question, Dr. Gaffney, how can listeners get connected to you and your work? Uh, You can follow me at willgaffney.com, which is where I post my sermons, uh, generally manuscripts, uh, sermon archive, the occasional video. You can follow me on Twitter, which is where I am most active. And I have an Amazon author page where you can buy all of my work. Awesome. I will say you are a wonderful Twitter follow. So if if those who are listening haven't followed you yet, which uh, shame on them for not doing so already, but if uh, if they haven't, they really need to to make a make that change in their life. Well, thank you very much. I appreciate it. And I enjoy following you as well. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Gaffney. I really love your work. Um, I really think that your contribution to the womanist tradition, as much as I probably have no say in it, but at least from my perspective, your contribution to the womanist tradition is absolutely groundbreaking and wonderful. And uh, and so to be able to speak with you and chat with you a little bit more about it, uh, about this particular work, is just it's a it's a dream. So thank you so much for your work. Thank you. Have a good evening.
If you'd like to connect with both Will and Shake It Up and their work, you can find links in the episode description. Thank you again for listening to another episode of A People's Theology. If you liked what you heard, please give the podcast a five-star rating and review. Also, please support the podcast at my Patreon at patreon.com forward slash Mason Menega. And remember, friends, go and be the theology to the world that inspires and liberates. <laughs>